and subtly interact in every human, healthy, and prosperous life. The history and logic of the Yoruba Atlantic religions differ in many ways from those inspired by Abraham. Suffice it to mention just a few of those differences here. First, the Yoruba-affiliated religions are non-eschatological and non-teleological. They do not represent social dynamics as a form of temporal progress towards sacrality or as predictable and sequent or as a predictable and sequential transcendence of one social order after another. Second, the other place of the Yoruba Atlantic religions is less a place to long for or an ideal world to aspire to than a place from which the gods cyclically arrive, conveying a powerful influence that human beings must nourish, use, and recycle with care. Third, the Yoruba Atlantic religions dramatize not the individuality of the person, individuality of the sort suggested by Abrahamic Judgment Day, the karmic cycle of reincarnation, or even by social security, but by the multipleness of each person. Multiple conscious beings are co-present in and around the Yoruba Atlantic body. The self is the convergence of multiple beings, a manifestation of the ritually engineered balance among those beings. Equally explicit in these religions is the view that these beings are normally exogenous to the body and most often literally foreign to the worshiper's place of residence. Consequently, the territory taken for granted in Yoruba Atlantic religion is not land, certainly not a nation state, as, one, as might be the case in Abrahamic religions from Genesis to Zionism to the latest crusade. But the taken for granted territory in the Afro-Atlantic religions is the worshiper's body itself. The following comparison of Ayoyoba religion in West Africa with its Brazilian and Cuban counterparts suggests the ironic hypothesis that no religion is ever in its homeland. Even at their putative geographical origins, religions imagine what I have called other places as their indispensable partners in the sacred exchange that generates health, prosperity, and power. In the Afro-Atlantic religions at home and abroad, Exile is not an abnormal and lamentable condition, but a precondition to the empowering transaction with the sacred other place. Yet some differences of emphasis between West African Yoruba religion and its American counterparts seem to flow from the fact of displacement. In the diaspora, the number of self-conscious religious groups act interacting is larger. Still other differences appear to flow less from the objective fact of transoceanic dispersion than from the forms of political subordination that Africans in the Americas had to manage with their complex ritual wherewithal. And I will detail those two types of change momentarily. So here's a quick and dirty summary of what I think might be relevant about Oyoyoba religion in this comparison. First, Oyoyoba people speak of multiple spirits that occupy the body. So for example, the ori, that is the head, is said to have been chosen by the person before birth in what English speakers tend to call heaven, but it might be below us someplace or it might be above us, it's not clear. Um, so in heaven, sometimes with the guidance of the ancestors, we choose a head. 
Some of those heads are well-made and sturdy. Some of them are pretty flimsy. And the sturdiness of your head corresponds to the goodness of your destiny, your perspicacity, your good luck, your ability uh, through your wits and, 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 uh, and intuition to navigate an adversarial world. This inner head isn't, isn't your physical head. It's said to have been made by a potter, so there's something vessel-like about it, but it really comes to occupy what's called, by contrast, your outer head, that is your skull and your scalp and so forth. Um, your inner head is detachable from you in a way. It, it exists outside your body, so a person who wishes you well might pray for you as you're about to travel. May your mother's head go with you, because your mother's head in some way transcends the boundaries of your body and can encompass you in its circle of protection. There's also uh, a spirit in one's toe called Ikwari that can see the dangers ahead of you so that you will not stumble. There's also a spirit that some Oyoyoba speak of in the back of your head, Ikbako, that can see dangers coming from behind. So these multiple spirits hover around you from the time that you're born. Likewise, there are Uisha, ancestors, heroes, kings and queens, and so forth, who uh, uh, tend to protect their descendants and manifest themselves especially taking over the personal consciousness of only people who are initiated typically or people who are called especially by them. Now, what's ironic is that even though uh, bourgeois people in Yoruba land tend to call this native religion, Essimibile, the praise poetry of the gods mostly describe them as foreigners. For example, Shango, probably the most famous of the gods, is called Takba. In other words, he's a member of the Nupe ethnic group that lives to the north of Nigeria. They also say he's a Muslim, but he's a bad Muslim with about three A's and bad. He's a, during, a, during Ramadan, like right now, he hides yam balls inside his robe and eats dog, eats dog head for, for, to break his fast, that sort of thing. So, so he's a Muslim, bad Muslim, but he's still a Muslim. He's configured as, and, and all that defiance of the Muslim social order, it's characteristic of the Orisha typically, that uh, he, they are so uh, powerful that they can violate anybody's social order and will do so in defense of their beloved followers. So um, sometimes the gods are said to come from the East. Now, there's an initiatic technology by which these gods are inserted in the person or tied especially strongly to the person. <coughs> Literally, incisions are made in the scalp and the substance of the god is placed inside. I recently read Michael Mason's book about Odisha initiation. He, he actually, um, he's a, uh, not a docent, but he's uh, an official of the Smithsonian Institution who set up that wonderful Africa exhibit hall. And he's an initiate, and he literally spoke of, of the time that, that the substances were being placed on in his head, and he felt that an animal was burrowing into his head. That's how he did it. Um, so through, through the initiation of Scout, uh, at least this American worshiper has articulated the logic that something, it felt like something was really going into the middle of his head. There's, uh, there are metaphors of marriage and mounting. That is, it's said that one, uh, one uh, becomes wedded to the god. One is a bride, becomes a bride of the god, and one is mounted by the god. And the term mount translates the term gun in Yoruba, which just as in the English mount can refer to what a rider does to a horse and what a, 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 an animal or brutish man does to his or her female partner sexually. Yoruba scholars tend men dislike it very much that I've, I've noticed this parallel, but it's, 
I just see it all over the place. They think it's the gods are too sacred for, for such a, a, a callous action to be attributed to them. But gods do horrible things. <laughs> gods, gods uh, I mean, the Abrahamic God, you know, smites left and right, and he also loves and protects. Gods, gods have to be frightening to be gods. And, and Christians and Muslims who, who dominate the, the public space, both in Nigeria and to a certain extent the United States, wouldn't say that about their gods, so Yoruba nationalists don't want such things said about their gods, even though the worshipers and devotees tend to celebrate the, the, uh, the uh, uh, defiant power of their gods to upset social norms. So in any case, so that went off unnecessarily because I'm sort of sensitive about this issue. <laughs> Another metaphor. Human beings are vessels. Um, that is to say that, that not only is the pot that we choose in heaven, not, not only is our head, our, the closest thing there is to an essential self, a pot, but on the altars of the West African and African diasporic gods of the Yoruba Atlantic, uh, what happens to our, what's done to our head in the initiation is also done to a pot that contains stones that are chosen and read for their, uh, their belonging to the god. Are you with me? So when, when your head's washed in herbs, the stone that represents God inside a pot on the altar is washed in those herbs. When you have blood applied to your head, blood is applied to the stones. And, uh, and uh, literally, they'll speak of the stone as, that's my head. And, uh, and oh, oh, when the ram's head is cut off during initiation of the sacrifice, the ram's head is put on the pile of stones, too. So there's something cephalic about these stones. And the, the, the various types of vessels in Yoruba altars uh, that seem to mime the, uh, the presence of the divine inside them include calabashes, mortars, uh, pots of various sorts. That's a thing you will see just all over any of these shrines, and it's taken for granted by most people who look at these religions, but having been to the Americas where I saw soup tureens all over the altars, I looked back and I said, oh, ah, vessels are really important in this tradition. So the human being is a vessel, especially the head, and the filling of that vessel is, uh, is the uh, mimesis of the god's entry into the head. Spirit possession is often induced by the placement of, for example, spirit possession by a, a river goddess is induced by placing a pot of sacred water from the river onto the goddesses, onto the priestess's head. And likewise, a pot of fire is often carried on the head of the god of thunder and lightning's possession priest. So the premise here is the premise of the hollow self, the hollow body, calories and stones that are placed inside them tend to have been recovered from the wild, from the rivers. Cowries themselves are the product of a vast international trade, especially with the Portuguese who brought them from the Maldives Islands. So the exogenous contents of the head represent the true uh, coming to self of initiates, the true uh, binding of ties that make the person who he or she is supposed to be. Now the myths and rituals of the gods chart the god's cycle of long-distance arrival and departure and demonstrate the nature of exemplary personhood through these forms of movement. So typically, the myths report uh, any, any given god uh, has been persuaded to come out of the woods or been, been persuaded to come into the house uh, or persuaded to get married. 
then uh, a deal is made for the person to stay, but then the deal is violated and the god runs off and turns back into a river or turns back into a, 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 a wild buffalo or turns back into a deer and so forth. Uh, so for example, uh, the goddess of the Ogun River, that's not Ogun, who's the god of one but the god of the Ogun River, is Yemoja. And Yemoja was very reticent to get married. And uh, Akere, who was the king of Shaki, kept seeing her in the market, and she was very beautiful. She looked strong, she was big and everything, and, <laughs> and fertile, and obviously very powerful. And the, the symbol of her power was that she had big breasts, really big breasts, which, which again, are beautiful breasts are pla praised as being like pots. Breasts like pots, so she had really, really big breasts. So he finally persuaded her to marry him, and she said, look, I'll marry you, but just on one condition. You must never abuse me through the mention of my breasts. And uh, she said, okay. And, and he said, okay. And in the versions where this is Ogun, the god of war and iron, he replies, okay, you must never abuse me for my red bloodshot eyes. And so they lived happily for a long time. She in the kitchen with her pots, and, and he doing whatever he did. And one day, uh, uh, he went into the kitchen to cook a meal for himself and ended up breaking one of her pots. And she got so angry that she said, you stupid red bloodshot-eyed man. And, and he said, Ooh. and she, he said, you stupid big-breasted woman. And then suddenly they run off. Ogun runs back to the forest. Yemoja runs and she falls down and rivers issue from her, her pot-like breasts or she turns into a river and so forth. So that's the sort of tale that's told and it just illustrates these scenes over and over and over again of pots, of the flowing out of power, the drawing in of power, the cycling of power through especially uh, the pot-like parts of human bodies like breasts, heads, and wounds especially. So, um, so this is a, a norm of, of personhood illustrated through the tales of the gods. During the festivals and their preparation, the same kind of cycling takes place. So all year long, these, uh, the stones and the water that's been brought back from the river sit in pots on the altar. But in preparation for the festival, they're spilled out across the floor. They're sacrificed to shake up the members and offer to them um, whatever will please the god. Uh, uh, often white people's liquor, Dutch schnapps is <laughs> preferred. Uh, uh, corn, which again is a, pr a product of the Colombian exchange, is the favorite food of Yemanja. These things are, are fed to the stones. Um, and, at, and soon thereafter, while the stones are spread out on the floor, there are ritual processions to the river in which, uh, in which uh, a, a, a priestess, in the case of the river goddess, goes to the river, uh, water is poured in the vessel, she becomes possessed and water is poured in the, in the water, is, the water in the pot is put on her head, and she walks around blessing people. Or a shango is possessed, and people gather around all waiting to be blessed by these possessed gods, and how do they bless people? You take off your hat and they touch your hip. And the most uh, uh, common blessing asked for is uterine fertility. So, uh, so as at the end of the procession, uh, the, the pots filled with the sacred substance iconic of the god are marched back into the shrine. The stones are restored to, to the pots, and everything's closed up within the shrine room for the coming year, where the power can be used by the priests and by the, the, the monarchs who, uh, who now have basically their power cells 
including their heads and their shrine rooms, restored. But uh, they can't stay in there forever. They have to come back out next year. <laughs> the power has to circulate. So again, it's not that you want permanently to capture the other place or permanently go to the other place, much less, but that you must have a constant transaction, a regular transaction, a socially contractual contra uh, transaction with the other place. Furthermore, the iconography of the gods, as I hinted, is rich in the accretions of literal transactions with other places. This is not just an imaginary process. These gods are worshipped with the accretions of trans-regional and trans-oceanic trade. So I mentioned corn. There's cowries uh, from the Maldives Islands. There are dame guns, uh, which are the typical symbols of Ubun, the god of war and iron, Ashasi, the god of the hunt, and, and, and marginal symbols of various other gods. There are beads also. Beads are very, very important. They, any priestess you see in your realm is going to be wearing beads. Every, so many objects that are sacred to the gods have beads all over them. Some beads are manufactured locally in any given town. Many towns are famous for one type of bead, but the accumulation of the multicolored arrangements of beads that end up being used in, in bead necklaces and adorning the, the shrines are accumulated from trade from multiple places. Uh, so they're closely associated with trade with Europe, Asia, and faraway African locales. Hence, in some, translocalism is perhaps the most enduring premise and commercial reality of, Oyo, of the Oyoyoruba technology of fashioning the self, the priesthood, and the monarch's political domain. Yet royalism and the imagined community of the Oyo Empire are not the only social project that the Odisha have, have served or the only project deeply imbued with translocal consciousness. So for example, in the 1890s, one of the uh, most important developments in, uh, in an emergent uh, Nigerian nationalism was the Lagosian cultural renaissance. So this was a product of, of, of a time when the British were trying to interdict the slave trade and, uh, and, uh, and stopped slave ships that were coming from the Bight of Benin and heading toward the Americas. They resettled these people along with, uh, with, uh, with Jamaica Maroons who had been, uh, who had been deported from Jamaica, uh, along with uh, African-American loyalists to the British after the U.S. War of Independence in Sierra Leone, where uh, these people were frequently educated in mission schools run by German missionaries, African-American missionaries, English missionaries. And uh, beginning uh, in the early 19th century, this generated a, a, a highly uh, educated class of people who uh, were, were great assistants to the British colonial project along the western coast of Africa. And uh, yet in the 1890s, some of, many of the commercial projects, uh, smaller than the well-financed uh, British companies were able to, uh, to sustain, collapsed due to an economic depression. In the 1890s, as tropical medicine improved, uh, many British missionaries, physicians, and administrators were sent out from England to replace these people who, indigenous to this area, educated in British ways and respectful of the British Empire, had been staffing all of these positions in the British Overseas Empire there. So they were being displaced, basically by racist policies that said, OK, well, if we can put a white man in charge, we're going to put a white man in charge. And their reaction was to say, okay, we, uh, uh, we might be Africans and you might consider us inferior, but look at our legacy. And they began doing research and essentially canonizing a cultural legacy 
that uh, was uh, that encompassed uh, uh, ethnic groups that had never thought of themselves as the same ethnic group. The Egbad, the Egbadu, the Ijebu people, the Awuri people, the Oyo people, um, Iwamina people. Some of these people speak kinds of Yoruba I can't make heads or tails of, but all of these populations now learn the kind of what's called standard Yoruba that was made up by exiles in Sierra Leone for the sake of writing the Bible and missionizing a wide, a wide population of people. So the, uh, the unified language that every so-called Yoruba has to learn when he or she goes to school, even though he or she wouldn't have understood it without going to school. And the Bible, in which, uh, which was the first book written in this language, became an emblem of a shared Yorubaness. And in the 1890s, a series of writings about the grandeur of the, especially the Oyo Kingdom, of, uh, of the Urisha, of uh, Yoruba poetry, of the Ifa Oracle, which is a, a corpus of divinator, divinatory writings, uh, became a, a sort of a, a, a source of great pride and dignity for these people who had been discriminated against and who had lost out economically uh, due to their not having the money that, uh, that British capital uh, commanded during the 1880s Depression. So, uh, they produced a significant body of literature in a way that resembled in significant ways the cultural nationalisms that, 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 that took place in, in Ireland, various parts of Europe at the same time, various parts of Latin America. This was part of a transnational phenomenon. Um, it was also transnational in the sense that uh, though they were making a, a nativist statement, as it were, about the dignity of their traditions, they still avowed very loudly and very clearly that these gods that so dignified them had come from the Middle East. They had come from Arabia, that the founder of the Yoruba people had come from Arabia, from the Near East, and so forth. So again, they were manifesting the same translocal consciousness, just in different terms from what uh, uh, their, uh, their uh, royalist uh, brothers and sisters had articulated. So how has transnationalism transformed Odisha worship in the Americas. The slave trade was an additional form of transnationalism with such distinctive and intergenerational consequences that it's been easy for most theorists of globalization and transnationalism to overlook. American slavery and racism, both products of a half millennium of translocalism, transimperialism, and transnationalism have indelibly colored the practice of Candomblé and Santeria which entered into a complex struggle for the consciousness, subjectivity, and imagination of the new world. In the idioms of your royalist spirit possession, Santeria and Candomblé dramatized the multipleness of the communities in terms of which every African diaspora person, and many a white Creole, is ambivalently forced to consider herself. Yet these religions empower the priests to master the outcome of this transaction and to articulate a model for white Creole nationalists as well. The Oyo Yoruba sacred technology of managing the multiple exogenous beings who make up the self is equally evident in Candomblé and Santeria. Yet rather than constructing the sacred as coming from the north, the near east, Mupe, Ileife, or some other town of lineage origin, the new world Worshippers of the Odisha construct the sacred as arising from transactions with other places known as Africa, Yoruba land, Ketu, the coast in Brazilian, Guinea, 
or underwater in Haitian parlance, Lukumi in Cuban parlance, and Cuba in the parlance of Cuban labor migrants and exiles. Yet in the Americas, the other places available for sacred transaction have multiplied. Further other places have become available through the imagery of Roman Catholicism, French Spiritism, Judaism, Freemasonry, and the Indianist lore of Euro-American nationalists. The Chinese gods are available too. Guanyin, Guangbing, and the Buddha. For example, there's a, I, I think martial, I think he's considered the, the uh, patron of the martial arts in China. Guangbing in Cuba is called San Fan Kong. He's the Chinese version of Chang'o, the god of the enlightenment. These are all available in Cuba, as are the Caboclo Indian spirits and the King of Turkey in Brazil. The King of Turkey sometimes comes to Brazil. There we go, it's funny. <laughs> Don't laugh, but. In the Americas generally, an additional plethora of African nations becomes available as other places. For example, Congo, Angola, and the Jeji nations are available to Yoruba descended Brazilians. And the Congo, Karabali, and Arara nations are available to the Yoruba descendants in Cuba. With this multiplication of other places in the Americas has come a greater systematization of the pantheon and a proliferation of the iconography associated with each one. On the other hand, Candomblé and Santeria have each reduced the number of acknowledged gods to a smaller set, smaller than the proverbial 201 or 401 that Yoruba mentioned. Yoruba people are really saying, there are a lot of gods. Ten different households can have ten different gods in the same town. A lot of gods that you, just, you wouldn't know the name of until you reach some little town in the back of nowhere. But in, in the Americas, there's a fairly finite number of gods, all of whom are extremely well-known across large populations. I'd estimate that in these American traditions, about fewer than 20 gods are, are worshipped in, in Kandamla, fewer than 20 in, in Umbanda, fewer than 20 in, uh, in Sangiria, and so forth. Yet because the gods are all worshipped in close proximity to each other, the colors, numbers, herbs, foods, and problem-solving powers distinctly associated with each god have become differentiated far more meticulously than in Yoruba land. In Yoruba land, all the gods do basically the same thing. They all make women pregnant. They all kill you if you bother their worshipers. They can all heal you. I mean, they, they, their powers are not particularly differentiated, but they're highly differentiated in Santeria and in Candomblé. Some of them deal with, I mean, like the, even the Lord of Pestilence in, in Nigeria. He can, he can do anything, but in the Americas, he's specifically associated with healing skin diseases. Oshun is specifically associated with fertility. Shango is specifically associated with justice. Oshasi, the hunter god, is specifically associated with the jail and getting you out of, out of jail. Uh, the, let's see. Uh, Yemoja is specifically a mother goddess. The, the goddesses and gods become very specific, and their iconography becomes very, very specific also. Moreover, great care is taken to correlate each non-Yoruba god or spirit with its Odisha counterpart. In other words, each Congo and Kisi god, each Dahomey and Vodun god, each locally important Catholic saint, and each spirit of the dead is identified as an avatar or ward of a Yoruba Atlantic Orisha. These are people who take very seriously the notion that they're the center of the world, and they incorporate multiple nations within not only their temples, but within their heads. In a related diasporic shift in emphasis, the West African aesthetic of assemblage has hypertrophied in the Americas. 
in each of the American traditions, the number of vessel altars, the diversity of vessel types, the range of objects required in the altars, the quantity and variety of beadwork and clothing ensembles, and the variety of iconic objects associated with each god have multiplied to include symbolically charged machetes, bows and arrows, beaded baseball bats. I was dying to bring my baseball bat. <laughs> I had this beautiful baseball bat because Cubans, uh, Cubans think of Chango as a real macho god. He's this real handsome mulatto, Mujeriego, how do you say that? He's a ladies man. And, and he does, he has the similar phallic things. He's, he's, he has okra, bananas, baseball bats. He's a great baseball player, I guess. So certain people are required by divination to give Chango a baseball bat. And they design these beautiful beaded baseball bats. That, and each, Chango's colors are red and white. And his numbers are 6 and 12. So they'll line up. Six white, six red, six white, six red on a long, long strand of beads and wrap them around the baseball bat. And it miraculously comes out with a pattern of like white lightning zigzagging across this baseball bat. And, and there'll be six red, red and white beaded tassels on the bottom with cowrie shells on them. And this is beautiful, beautiful things, but I was afraid it was going to break. I was bring my computer in order to shorten this puck. So, in any case, this thing magnified the number of iconic objects. Um, also, uh, crowns for altars, shields, uh, Roman Catholic saint statues, garabatos, like in, when they were harvesting sugarcane, they would use a hook to pull the sugarcane and chop it off so the leaves wouldn't cut your hand. And that's what, what issue the Lord of the Crossroads does to bring good things to you. Um, let's see, canes, flags, maracas of diverse materials, cloth arrangements, bead necklaces, symbolic tools, and so forth, all always marked with the correct iconic color and numbers. Highly, highly systematized. On the personal altars of the New World, these items accumulate on, alongside other evocative items, chosen and gifted to priests according to more intuitive principles, like mementos in a scrapbook. In Santeria and Vaudoux, even more than in Candomblé, each person's body, set of vessel altars and sacred paraphernalia, thus embody the accumulating presence of a dozen or more gods, spirits of the non-dead kin, ancestors who have been materially represented, nourished, and ritually inserted in or tied to the body of the priest. And you can see it all represented on the altar in an infinite diversity, all of the things that are inside and hovering around that person's body. Yet the most distinctive circumstance of the transatlantic diaspora is equally evident in, in Santeria and in Candomblé. This distinctive circumstance does a great deal to explain the American intensification of the ritual effort to link the person to multiple personifications of translocal and non-kin communities. That is, the foundational forms of Urisha and Uricha worship, that is in Brazil and Cuba, emerged in communities separated from their lineages marginalized politically in their host nation states, and relegated involuntarily to low status roles in the present place. The people who first brought the Odisha to the Americas were slaves. However, African captives in the Americas often reconfigured the imagery of slavery in their most sacred rites. The African diaspora gods are, in some ways, con configured as beneficent masters who punish the initiate harshly for disobedience. The solidarity of captives in the slave ship hold 
is also named and reenacted in Brazilian initiations, where a group of people initiated together is called a barco, or a boat. This is a pretty pan-American phenomenon. The people who came over on a ship together considered best of friends. So best friends and official you know, friend partnerships are called by these terms all over the Americas, and it's embedded right within the initiation of Candomblé. The spirit slave, too, plays an important part in the spiritual ensemble of each Cuban or Brazilian priest. For example, in Cardassist-inspired spiritual masses, many priests of Cuban Santeria and Brazilian Umbanda channeled the spirits of elderly deceased slaves, particularly house servants, who were regarded as gentle and wise but effective. The, the Cuban Palomayombe tradition, in that tradition, the spirits of the dead are usually identified as people from Congo, but they are literally chained down in their iron cauldron altars and forced to work for the priest. Perhaps reflecting the insecurity of connubial or marital partnerships among the New World captives, Oyoyoba marriage symbolism has declined in the representation of God possession priest relationships, while the symbolism of birth and slavery has become more prominent. Santeria and Candomblé rituals have not, however, been the prerogative of the most destitute people. These sacred practices require free time, space, privacy, and the money to purchase numerous sacrificial items and the paraphernalia of the ritual self. The skills and resources of professional cooks, butchers, and seamstresses are plainly evident in the elaborate clothing and the elaborate and highly specialized cuisine of these traditions. Most of the vessels on Santero and Candomblesista altars are China food service vessels that either contain the sacred stones of the gods or are reserved for the service of their sacred foods. Hence, the year-round altars of these religions look like china closets or cabinets, while the festive altars of Santeros look like banquets. And sacred post-festival meals in all of these traditions are literal banquets with lots and lots of food served. The servile condition of the African captives who cultivated Candomblé and Santeria have thus had at least two consequences. First, these religions have turned the tools of domestic servitude into instruments of empowerment through the establishment of master-servant relationships with the mighty denizens of the other place. Second, Afro-Cubans and Afro-Brazilians have needed to balance the expectations and exploit the alliances available to them in multiple communities that accorded them lowly status. These communities include white, elite white households, European royal empires, emergent American republics that reserve the best jobs and highest political offices for whites, and an international community of nation states where primary producers and non-English speakers were and remain marginalized. 